we've already made more impact than anybody would. And um, yet I still have to convince people that it is important to invest in black women um, and even more important to invest in previously incarcerated black women. Hey everyone, welcome to The Hardest Step, an original podcast from The Lost Debate. I'm Chris Marte, a New York City council member, and I'm here with my brother, Koss. That's right. What's up, everybody? Koss Marte here. I'm a returning citizen and the founder of Combody, a nonstop prison-style boot camp where we proudly hire formerly incarcerated individuals as our instructors. Today, we're joined by a phenomenal criminal justice activist, Topeka K. Sam. Like myself, Topeka found herself in federal prison for drug trafficking charges. But after going through all that, she found true sense of purpose. Since 2017, her organization, the Ladies of Hope Ministries, has helped women and girls transition out of prison. We're excited to have her on the show today to talk about all of this and more. Topeka, thanks for joining us. Welcome to The Hardest Step. Yeah, how's it going? How you doing? <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Everything is cool. I appreciate you having me. And huge fans of both of you and your work. So excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think let's just jump right in. You know, I was reading about your upbringing. You came up in a really white suburban community with a lot of support uh, with your family. And then you decided to go to college in Baltimore City. And that's where things changed a lot in your life. Can you describe a little bit of what happened there? What what that led to? Sure. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for reading a little bit about my background and for knowing at least that much so I don't have to start there. So, you know, a round of applause for you. (laughs) So thank you, really. Um, But when I got to Baltimore, you know, college obviously was going to be the natural progression for me. Um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I I wanted to be a lawyer since I had been like five years old. Um, and I also wanted a Mercedes Benz 500 SL. I uh, had no idea I would end up <laughs> working in the law this way or even go to prison. But, you know, it's all good now. Um, but when I got to Baltimore, I obviously chose Baltimore and chose an HBCU, Historically Black College, because I wanted to be around other black and brown kids. You know, trying to find a sense of connectedness and belonging, trying to find other people that were like me. And though extremely excited to be around my sisters and brothers, I was treated differently. You know, I often say I had a little, my my swag was a little different. So they would say, you know, you talk like you're white or, you know, you're not like us or you're pretty to be dark skinned and all of these things. And I had no idea what any of it meant. And so I was really just trying to be accepted. And so while it's the first time I'm away from my parents and my family and I'm on my own and really the first time I'm starting to date, you know, uh, my parents always had a place in Harlem. Uh, I only came to Harlem on the weekends for piano lessons, <laughs> dance and flute. Or my parents, they also owned a Carvel franchise in Brooklyn. So I would go there um, sometimes to work. And then they had a restaurant in Harlem. So I'd be there. But I wasn't a city girl. Right. But I repped Harlem. So when people would be like, where are you from? <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I'm from Harlem, you know, <laughs> just so that I could be down. Or, right, or they'd be like, oh, really? Where you from? I'm like, yeah, Common Avenue. And they're like, oh, well, you know, I get my drugs from Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is the block under Convent, but I didn't go to Amsterdam yeah, Avenue, yeah. you know? a little so bit nicer. It was, the, the park is right there, but, it, you know, they got the priest right. down the block. I used to get shit back then. We probably got the same connect. Word. <laughs> 
So, you know, I didn't know. And I just, you know, started learning, you know, what was really happening because I just was listening. And so that's really how I began to get engaged in all of the things that my parents tried to avoid me getting into, having been raised out to your your point around all the white people in the Hamptons. Yeah, and then so you're you're in college and you start getting into the wrong crowds, uh, trying to be, I, in my opinion, someone different than who you thought you were, right? And what led you into you know drug trafficking and and eventually selling? So I first was introduced to it through the guys that I had dated, you know, because they were selling drugs and no one asked me ever, you know, hold this, move this, any of that. It was, you know, I became, I was a girlfriend of a guy who sold drugs first. And when I started seeing, you know, this kind of cycle of being arrested or different things happening, I basically was just like, you know, I'm smarter. I can do this better. I always had a business mind. So it was just like, they're not, they're doing bad business. And eventually, you know, I went from being the girlfriend of a drug dealer to then finding myself selling drugs myself. And so though, you know, I never started off like as in a small scale, I literally um, went and found a connect who from across the country, who was a part of the Mexican cartel. And the first time I got engaged, they gave me a hundred kilos of cocaine. And that's how I started my quote, career at the time. I'm all while still going to school and in this relationship. And I was not in the beginning supposed to be doing this. I actually went to get the connect for my then boyfriend. But, you know, women, sometimes we end up stepping up into places because sometimes men can't do it. And he couldn't handle what they had bought. And because I knew a lot of people and I felt that I could get it done, I did. So all I did, I looked at myself as a broker. I knew people who would buy and then I would be able to give the money to the connect. And I, and that's just what it was. So I never really understood the impact of my actions because I didn't have anybody in my family that I knew of that did drugs. Um, I had not been raised and been around it. So I just had this idea that people did drugs because they wanted to. And all I was doing was providing a service to someone or a product to someone who was selling the drugs. And because I didn't have my hands quote dirty, I wasn't doing anything wrong. Yeah, so you you are very opportunistic. Uh, I feel like you have that hustler mentality. Is like you, you see a supply and there's a demand, and and you're gonna just take advantage of it, you know. And and and, and getting to that, you know, I want to know like how you got involved. Fast forwarding after your time in prison, how you got involved with your nonprofit organization, and and how you started all that. Yeah. So while I was in prison. Um, you know, I started just asking the women that I was with, like, why they use drugs. And when they were telling me their stories of trauma, um, the first woman told me her father had raped her and he gave her heroin so the pain would go away. Mm. And then another sister said the only time she was able to spend time with her mom was when they smoked crack together. And when I started hearing those stories and really I remember breaking down because I could not understand how I could contribute to the harm of someone else. That's when I decided to plead guilty because I was guilty of conspiracy and um, I went to prison and while into federal prison, I should say. And so while in um, federal prison, it was the same things that I would hear, you know, the sexual trauma, violence, the mental health issues, the fear of coming home and not knowing where they'd go. And so um, God placed on me in the middle of the night one night, like you're going to start an organization. It's going to be called the Ladies of Hope Ministries. And that I was to do two things. One, provide housing for women and girls. And the other was to create platforms for people to be able to use their voice 
to share their story, to bring public awareness to the issues that drove women and girls to prison. And when I was released, I just hit the ground running. Like I knew um, exactly what it was that I needed to do. And so I went to seminary school first because I wanted to learn more about different religions so I can connect to people on a spiritual level. Then I went to Columbia University and did two programs, um, a fellowship called Beyond the Bars and then one called a Justice and Education Scholar, just so I can learn more about criminal justice and about the landscape. And as I was organizing around the country, meeting other sisters who have been incarcerated, it was the same issues again. And so in 2017, I was connected uh, to a sister, Susan Burton, who gave us our first grant to start Hope House in the Bronx as a safe housing space for women and girls coming home. And from there, I then, you know, have a house in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, we just purchased a house in Prince George's County, Maryland. We have one in Trinidad. We're doing our first affordable housing development project in Miami, Florida, um, working on a project in Detroit, Michigan with Angela Yee and Ricky Hughes, which is another affordable housing for-profit venture, a co-living space. And then in the organization now, we have about 23 employees, seven programs, consistently growing and scaling in order to provide you know, holistic wraparound services for families impacted by the legal that, system. That's amazing. And you know, kudos to all the work you've been doing, especially in such a short time. I want to go back a little bit to the conversations that you had in prison, right? So you're in prison, you got convicted, and you're talking to these women here. What were some of the stories? Can you describe like the situation you're in? Um, you know, 85% of all women who are incarcerated are mothers. Um, over 90% of all women who are incarcerated are have been reported survivors of intimate partner or sexual, sexual trauma and violence. Over 95% of women incarcerated have some type of mental health issue, whether it's anxiety uh, to something more severe like schizophrenia. And while I was there, I was meeting women from all different types of demographics, all levels of socioeconomic backgrounds, all different levels of education, but all of the same issues. And so while they would be scared, you know, I just got out of a relationship where I was abused and now I don't know where I'm going to go. Or, you know, they were married and they would receive divorce papers in the mail or sisters would call home and a woman would answer the phone. You know, they hadn't seen their children in years. Sometimes mothers who have been in 20 years haven't even been able to see their children in a decade because there was no, you know, finances to get to see them. Um, no visits. You know, often before I was incarcerated, I visited pe men in prison, you know, friends of mine, even family members. And the visiting rooms would be packed. It would be people there all the time. But when I was incarcerated, you know, a lot of times it was only me um, because women didn't get visits like that. And often that's because, you know, their children are home with, you know, the grandparents or elderly caregivers who cannot afford to bring the children thousands of miles to see their parent who's incarcerated. So I realized when I was incarcerated, the level of privilege that I had in my life, period, and then I also realized the level of privilege that I had while I was incarcerated. And so I knew that when I came home, I could do anything because of my education, of my career and business development, because of my wherewithal, because of my connections. Uh, but I also knew that this majority of the sisters that I left behind would not. And so it was my now calling and anointing that I had to go through this experience to see what it was that God wanted for me to do. And so I knew that, you know, obedience is much greater than sacrifice. And I decided to be obedient. 
and do what God wanted me to do. And so we're here. And, you know, I think you touch on something really that most people don't, right? Even myself, when I think about prison, I always think about men in prison. And maybe I'm biased because my brother was in there, my cousins were in there, all male cousins, but I had very few female cousins. And now as a city council member, and we start looking into like the criminal justice system here in New York City, hardly anyone talks about the women jail on Rikers Island. And in most cases, they're actually worse facilities than the men have because people prioritize the men facilities because they typically get the most attention. Can you describe like what you've seen in these prisons when you're either in there or when you go back for your advocacy and activism? Yeah, I mean, it's to your point, it's the same. You hit it on the nose, right? Prisons were not made, in my opinion, for anyone, irrespective of gender. But you, they definitely were not made for women. You know, you go in and just how you're treated from the very beginning, you know, the, the strip, even, I mean, let's take to arrest, you know, the way they may body you to the ground and handcuff and shackle you. Um, we see that we're starting to see more of that when we see policing videos, um, you know, how they search you, you know, they invade your body, uh, you know, even cavity searches sometimes actually insert their fingers or touch you, you know, inappropriately in, in your, in your lady parts. You know, as it comes to healthcare, you know, we passed over 15 pieces of legislation nationally just to ensure that women and girls had pads and tampons at no cost to them. We had to pay for that. The fact that, you know, children are, like I said, thousands of miles away, you know, the, the sexual trauma and the violence that women face being incarcerated by the hands of guards, both men and women. You know, the tactics that are being used in order to treat women so that they will perform sexual favors uh, so they're not locked away or the visits are taken away and the way that women as a vulnerable population are already treated, but how we are even more dehumanized uh, while we're incarcerated. And I mean, of course, the list can go on and on. But often when we talk about these things, when I've done events around the world really now, Men who are in the audience, they always will come up to me and say, well, damn, sis, like I had no idea what women went through in prison. Like y'all do have it worse than us, which is why I focused my work on women and girls, because we we don't think that women, for whatever reason, we don't think women and girls are in prison. And people have this idea that, you know, prisons are a vacation. Or that it's not that bad, but the majority of people who even are doing this work, are writing legislation um, around reform, have never even walked inside of a prison. And so, you know, we talk about the food that people eat, even if you can identify this food. I remember getting eight pieces of bread, white bread, and four pieces of tricolor bologna as a meal of mm-hmm. uh, outdated milk. You couldn't drink water from the sink because it was so contaminated that every time you would try to swallow the water, you would get stomach cramps. I mean, it's so much. Um, and I know, Kosh, you understand because you've been through yep. it, you know, and it's just so sad that this country, which they talk about, you know, is, you know, the one, if not the best country in the world, treats their people um, in the way that they do. So, you know, I fight on so many different levels. I believe that we can hold people accountable without bringing further harm and trauma to them. And I know prisons are not the solution. Prison did not change me. It was the women that I met that did. 
And so I think that we can create alternatives to incarceration. We can create new opportunities and experiences uh, for people to be accountable, be get, be healed. Um, because as we know, 95% of all people go to prison, we'll come home one day. And so if that is the case, how do we want people to be? I think stronger and better community members and not more traumatized. Uh, yeah, I thank you for like breaking that down and, and depicting that for us. But how was that transition for you? I know, I know you have family, but to start something from the ground up, I know it's you have the resources, but it's not easy. You know, starting again, just readapting back into society. It was very difficult for myself. But can you describe like that first step out of the prison system and and first making that that leap? You know, into getting mm-hmm. into this organization. Yeah, for sure. Well, first, I often make a joke that, you know, when I went into prison, it was an iPhone three and I came out, it was an iPhone (laughs) five. So much didn't change as it relates to technology and stuff like that. Um, And I was really technology savvy. So it was fine. That part, um, I think the emotional, spiritual and, you know, mental issues that I had coming home, it was difficult kind of reintegrating. So for example, Um, I came home, I went to the halfway house, which was the worst experience. Um, It was disgusting. It was dirty. It was filthy. And when I was able to get out of the halfway house and go home, I ended up living with my parents. And so, you know, being a 39 year old woman at the time. So uh, for for people that don't know what a halfway house is, can you can you break that down a little bit more? Yeah. So the halfway house is categorized as this place, a halfway home. So you go from prison into community confinement or custody. So you're still technically incarcerated under whatever system it is. For us, it was the BOP, Bureau of Prisons, the federal system. And then you're there and you have to live there, basically. So you're able to go out to school or to work if you have a job or you're enrolled in school and you come there and you go to sleep. Um, and you have to do that usually depending on when how much time you did will determine how much time you have to be in the halfway house. So it's six months to a year typically, um, sometimes less. I was able to get out because my home, my home was approved. And so um, I went to my parents' house. And as I was saying, I was 39. The last time I lived with my parents was when I was 18 going to college. So that was fun, but it was safe. And I remember coming home and go into my room and close the door, bathroom in my room. So I wouldn't leave out. And I remember my parents, you know, like lightly knocking on the door and, you know, asking me if I was okay. And I wouldn't, you know, come out. And I realized just in going to therapy, because I went to therapy every single week for the first year of me being home, that I was mimicking the behavior of being in a cell. So I didn't even realize that as I was going in, I was going in and shutting the doors if shell gate was being shut behind me and I wouldn't leave out until it was time for me to go out. And psychologically, that time would be when it was count time. And I did that for a while, but until I became aware of what was happening. Also, as it relates to starting my organization, I mean, that was difficult. It still is hard. I mean, being a woman, um, being a black woman, you know, we are, you know, some of the fastest growing entrepreneurs, but yet we receive under 3% of any startup capital. Um, But then being a previously incarcerated black woman, um, it's like we are unheard of. And so what's so difficult about, you know, my role is that as a nonprofit um, CEO and founder, I have to raise money in order to continue to build and scale my business. And yet the only way that I'm able to do that is by, you know, convincing people what they already know they need to do is right, which is helping to end poverty and incarceration. But part of that is me reliving my trauma 
And so it's always, Tamika, tell us your story, which is why I said to you, thank you for at least, you know, uh, I guess helping me not to have to go through that piece of it again. But it's, you know, share your story. And then, you know, people almost romanticize about the traumas and things that we have experienced and gone through. But then you, you know, bleed to death all over again. And then it's like, okay, thank you. And then you may not even receive a check. So, you know, it's like at this point, I'm like, look, just Google me or (laughs) watch my TikTok if you want to know about what happened. But more about like, what do we do? And and you're going to you're going to have to continue pitching yourself and telling your story. I'm, I'm in the same boat, you know, and, and gotten a million and a half no's from angel investors and VCs. And it's, it's not easy, but uh, it, it's something that I guess we have to do. And, and it, they find it a little bit sexy, you know, and, and now criminal justice is a little, you know, it's more attractive than what it used to be before. You know, back in the day, like nobody wanted to invest in anybody that's been in the system, you know, and now unfortunately but fortunately like the george floyd stuff like brought things to light you know and i felt like there was way more opportunities now for us to like get these people aware and get them to give us money and and one thing that i heard you say was like you know before and and i was talking to chris about it you you mentioned that you want like a billion dollars or something so i think there was an interview and somebody asked you like what do you want you want you was like i want to be a billionaire so i could you know do something with it but i think it was like i want to affect the criminal justice space uh but can you tell us a little bit about that and and what do you want to do because i have the same mentality i want a billion dollars myself but i want to you know make a change with that billion dollars but what do you want to do yeah, so that interview you're talking about was my interview for Variety Magazine. Um, I had received the first Social Impact Award from Google at the Lifetime TV Variety Magazine Power of the Women Summit. And for that, you know, the more money that I'm able to have, the more I can do and the more impact I can. You know, I look at myself as a social entrepreneur. You know, I came out broke and I had to start over and I did the work because that's the way God wanted it. But for me, I need to create generational wealth for my family. You know, I have seven nieces and nephews and a godchild and, you know, family and people that I take care of. And, you know, it's great to have this. And, you know, if I die today, what will they say? Topeka, Dr. Topeka K. Sam has done incredible work and she's done amazing things. But I only thing I can leave to my family is the money that's in my bank account, the life insurance policy that I have. Um, and not the generational wealth that I truly could and should have created building this organization. I don't own it. It's nonprofit. I own nothing. And so what I'm doing now is shifting that into real estate development, land acquisition, and building other for-profit entities like within the health space and other spaces, media, arts, things like that, because at the end of the day, I am a businesswoman. At the end of the day, I've been through many things in my life. And also I deserve to create the life that I want to live. And so often those of us that are in this space are frowned upon because we are deciding to live our lives out loud and live our lives in the way that we believe that we deserve. And, you know, what's so incredibly frustrating to me is it's a lot of these old time foundations or even new ones that pop up. And they end up being invested in getting millions upon millions of dollars to do work. And then they end up giving us $50,000 to do a consulting agreement for the work that they're getting $10 million to do. I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. I I, I understand. 
right. You know, so I'm not talking. I'm talking to you. Yeah. You know what it is. Yeah. You know, but the people who are listening may not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, during George Floyd, which you mentioned, I didn't see an uptick in our fundraising at all. Really, what happened was people were like, oh, we're not we're not uh, focusing or donating our money into incarceration reform or prison reform. We're now moving into racial equity and racial justice, not understanding that it's the same thing. People will jump onto these terms that they hear that become popular, yet they don't even really understand where the money is going. And so it has been an interesting journey, to say the least. What, what does your day to day look like? Oof. All right. Well, today um, I'm on the other side of the country. So (laughs) that's one. Um, So I was getting calls early. I think it was like seven o'clock or six o'clock when, you know, I got in late. Um, But typically my day, my calendar says this. I'm (laughs) supposed to be up around 536 and I go for a walk. And I'll do that for about an hour. Then around seven o'clock, me and one of my sisters, Aisha Barbalonia, who's also incarcerated, uh, we pray together. And then from then, um, you know, I I take my shower, do all those things. And then I start my day with my first calls, usually around 830. Um, So between calls, meetings, that happens all day. Everything is fundraising for me, project management. Then also I travel every single week. You know, whether it's a different state, a different city, you know, multiple cities within a particular state, you know, now a Titanium Marriott member, a Delta Diamond, you know, (laughs) a Platinum, uh, you know, all the things because of all the travel that I do. But again, you know, it is exhausting. It's huge sacrifice. But again, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, how you have been a business person, but you've done a lot within politics as well. Can you tell us, you know, your relationship with Kim Kardashian and creating the video to to help uh, Alice? So when I was organizing, like I mentioned earlier, um, around the country, doing these panels called Real Women, Real Voices uh, with other formerly incarcerated women, Alice was one of the only people that were approved from inside of the federal prison to share her story. And I was connected from her, from Amy Pova, who has can do clemency. And so from there, we did one at Google or YouTube and Michael Skolnick uh, reached out and was like, Mike.com wanted to do something. And so I was connected to Mike.com. We were able to then produce the video with Mike.com. That video went viral. And um, and that was of Alice. Kim Kardashian saw the video. And from there, she decided to advocate because she could see this could happen to anyone. And she became very passionate about the issue from that. Alice came home and she has been really instrumental in using her platform in order to begin to, you know, help to highlight and lift the issues of people in incarcerated, you know, people who've been incarcerated and the need for clemency and, you know, stopping some of these over incarcerated sentences uh, that people have, especially from years, you know, the, the old drug laws. For those who don't know who Alice uh, Marie is. Can you share a little bit about her story and who she is? Yeah. So I would love to introduce you to her so Alice could be on, on the show and share her Let's story. Um, but Alice has been, was incarcerated for over 20 years. Um, she was already in her 40s when she was incarcerated. The first time, categorized as first time, nonviolent, um, made some phone calls. And in, in, in those phone calls, because she did not cooperate, landed her with a life sentence in federal prison uh, for a drug conspiracy charge. 
And so when I was connected to her, she had already done 20 years. She had already applied for clemency several times and was denied. She had lawyers like Brittany Barnett and um, other lawyers who had helped her throughout the years. And it, you know, God's timing is perfect timing. It just ha- so happened that, you know, God used me in order to help to elevate her story and God used Kim in order to bring it in front of Trump. You know, as it relates to that, I always say, well, you know, while I helped to free Alice, Alice helped to free me. And with her help and that of Jessica Jackson and Van Jones and, you know, Daniel Loeb and so many other people, I received the full presidential pardon myself um, in December 2020. Congratulations. Thank you. So, you know, life is about reciprocity. Yeah. And what do you think the biggest barriers in the political side of moving criminal justice forward the right way? Ego. (laughs) That's the biggest barrier. You know, you don't want to give this person the credit or, you know, we don't want it to be too right or too left. And I learned that really when President Trump was in office and we had an opportunity to go in the White House. And I didn't go the first time I was invited because of who Trump was, right, or is, And the things that people told me who are mentors, they were like, you know, you can't go in and you can't work with him and this, that. And I didn't. But I said to God, if I get another opportunity, um, then this is you who wants me to do it. And I did. And I went in the second time and I brought 15 sisters with me. When I talked to my sisters and brothers who were presently incarcerated, they didn't care who was in office. You know, when President Obama was in office, he did what he could under CP14. And there were a few thousand people, about a hundred, a handful of women who were released under the Clemency Initiative. But we had a great opportunity to free thousands of people under the Federal First Step Act. And people said, you need to go in because if I was not in that room, then we would not be represented. And so when the legislation did pass, I was one of two, the only black woman who had been previously incarcerated. Sean Hopwood was in there as well. Um, in the Oval Office when the bill was signed into law. And it was important that we were in that process so that, you know, it was a first step, but it was important because if we were not there, there would have been things that were in the bill, things that were omitted from the bill, um, language that should not have been in there, that would have been in there because people who were actually writing the laws had never lived the same experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I appreciate you being in that room and, and taking that step. It's not easy. And I've, you know, I, a lot of people feel a certain way about Trump. You know, I mean, he, he talks crazy, but it, like you mentioned, it's a human issue. And, and you got to go, you know, past that, whatever controversy and the ego that people had. Yeah, and we constantly hear that from a lot of the people we interview, you know, especially when it comes to the criminal justice space, they say, we don't care if you're left or right, if you're Democrat or Republican, we, we care about people. And I think once they focus on the humanity aspect of it, that's what we've been able to see through our interviews, the, the greatest change. So really appreciate you, you know, staying focused on the mission and, and not getting distracted by everything. <laughs> it was hard. It was hard. I got cussed out for my people. <laughs> yeah, I was like, sure. boy. <laughs> whatever. You know, whatever. You you did the right thing. And and that's what counts. Thank you know, you. and uh I think a lot of people that are in our shoes don't even trust the system to even vote, you know. And so i appreciate you getting in front of that. It's a lot of pressure. You know, I I got to represent uh and, and testify in front of the Senate and that was like 
that was not easy, you know? So going up in, in front of those people that are writing the laws and making history and you rewriting history, it's a, you know, I appreciate that movement. Thank you. But, you know, I, well, I wanna get back to your organization too and talk about like the, the mentorship work, the tutoring work. I would love to like hear, you know, an individual story of an individual that's gone through your, your program and a uh, success story, you know, and, and what yeah, are you doing today? sure. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy that we have so many and that, you know, no one has gone back to prison who's gone through any of our programs. So I'm excited about that. We have a 0% recidivism rate. You know, when I think about one story being that, you know, we're all from New York, think about Nequasia Pollard, who I met when she was in Bedford Hills through the phone. Um, I just started my organization. Uh, she had already done 16 years, went in um, young and was pregnant when she went in and had already gotten her degree while she was incarcerated, but wanted to come home and be connected to an opportunity because as she has said in her family, she hasn't been around really positive, um, successful black women. And so when I met her, she came and started working with us. Nequasia was getting paid before I even paid myself. But today she, I mean, she's been through a number of our programs. She also was one of our employees, but she has now her own nonprofit organization called Pure Legacy. It focuses on um, girls in New York. And now she's scaling her organization as well. I'm on her board. I'm incredibly proud of her and the work that she's been able to do and consistently does as a young black woman who's been, you know, incarcerated. And, um, you know, that was one story that just came to my mind. Our director of comms, Starlin Thomas, is, you know, an Emmy-nominated writer and producer and, you know, is doing incredible work with us at our organization. You know, we have women who sit on, you know, on the commissioner's boards and things across the country, sisters who are making $10 an hour and now making 30 working in tech. I've created seven programs and those programs were to help women to be able to build sustainable lives. But, you know, you know, really above even what people say is like the market median. Um, I know that most people who are driven into prison, um, a lot of times when you are, you know, as you said earlier, Casa Hustler, you know, you don't want to have to come home and work at, you know, bagging groceries at the store. Um, you don't want to work in the mail room when you've already worked making 40 cents to five, five to 40 cents an hour for 20 years. You know, you really want something that you can do that you can be proud of and that your family can be proud of. And so, you know, all of our programs create those opportunities, like our Pathways for Equity program is a program that's career development and growth focused. So we partner with corporations to make people make sure people have growth focused job opportunities and not just coming in an entry level positions like real decision making roles, making, you know, high five and six figure jobs off the break with full benefits. Uh, Faces of Women in Prison program, which is a global speakers bureau that trains women on how to use their voice to change, tell their stories, but also get paid as public speakers because so often we're sharing our experiences and then we don't get paid. And as I said, you've been crying and, you know, bleeding all over again and there's no compensation for it. I don't know if you know Sharon Richardson from. Um, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So she that was one thing I told her. She was like going out speaking everywhere. So Sharon uh, Richardson was uh, uh, just so catering. She has her own catering company and sells incredible soul food. Her chicken, fried chicken is yeah. crack. Uh, <laughs> uh, but 
yeah, one thing she was doing, she was like talking everywhere. And I'm like, yeah. And I was like, yo, how much you getting paid? And she's like, I'm just doing it for free. I'm like, yo, you better start asking for money. Like you deserve it. You're putting all your info out there. You put, you did like 25 years. Or I think she did 27 or something like that. And I would love to have mm-hmm. her on the show. I'm going to hit her up. But I mean, we have, for, we're giving out energy. We're giving out, you know, positive movement. We're giving out advice. And a lot of other people are getting paid lots and lots of money for speaking and she didn't realize you know that she could make money off of this you know so i'm i'm happy that you're putting people on you know oh yeah i learned that very early (laughs) on i was when i was telling you i was doing those conferences and i was just doing you know people give us budget you know hotel and travel a little food stipend and i thought it was fine but i remember one place i spoke at a person was like hi you know do you have my honorarium check and I just kind of heard, and I was like, what's honorarium? You know, so I went and I Googled it. I'm like, wait a minute, they getting money and I'm not getting money? And yet I got everybody crying when I'm done talking and they not, you know. So then when we did a panel, the woman asked me, she said, well, how much is your honorarium? And I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't know, $100? Like, I had no idea. So I'm thinking it's an hour, you get $100 an hour, that's good, you know. And she was like, well, no, we don't pay our speakers less than $500. And I was like, what? Right. And it was 15 women. So I'm starting to do the math. And as I started doing my research, people getting paid $5,000, $10,000, $25,000, $50,000 to speak. I'm like, hold up. And so the first year I had been speaking publicly, I had made like an additional $50,000 in income. And I was like, wow, well, if I can do this and I didn't do it with any strategy, you know, or any minimum that I can teach other women to do it. And so, you know, we've trained now almost 100 women. We have a speakers bureau platform um, that we use and women can give people out their link. People can go on there. And then, you know, we have a a coordinator now that helps to negotiate um, their fees for them. So that's another program. We have our Epic Ambassadors program, which trains women on the legislative process, learn like how do you write a bill, get co-sponsored a bill and then get them registered as lobbyists. We have a doula initiative um, through our health equity work. We train women on how to be birth workers to change the maternal morbidity outcomes for women of color. So we're doing a lot of great work, really excited and really blessed. Um, And now focusing on helping children also through our study buddies program with mentorship and making sure that they stay connected to their parents while their parents are incarcerated and helping them to get scholarships um, to go to college. So, you know, I thought I was done with all of my, um, my programs, but you know, just something recently came up with the United States probation and parole department. So I'm going to be creating something else and, you know, another healthcare initiative. So, you know, it's all good. You saw, you solving problems. <laughs> you solving problems. Yes. that And that's right. Where there's problems, that's there's exactly opportunities. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do you think you already overcame your hardest stuff? And what was that? Are you still thinking that you're still in it? It's like a longer process than, than you imagine. I definitely didn't overcome the hardest things. You know, I've realized most recently I haven't even uh, dealt with the trauma that I experienced through prison. You know, I came home and I've worked and just built. So that's one, you know, therapy and consistent therapy is necessary. You know, I know how to ground myself and I've learned how to use my tools and I know how to manage my triggers, but it doesn't take away from the fact that I talk to people who are in prison every single day. And so it's always reminiscent of that. And then also, you know, as it relates to building a business, scaling a business, that's still difficult because people still have biases. No matter how many, how many awards I've gotten, you know, I've gotten an honorary doctorate, I've got a full pardon, 
but people still don't want to give me a hundred million dollars. You know, it's like, let's start off with a hundred thousand at this point, you know, though grateful, that's not going to take us where we need to go. We've already made more impact than we, anybody would in five years. I mean, we're just five years old. Things I know that we've accomplished that people don't accomplish in 20, 30 years. And um, yet I still have to convince people that it is important to invest in black women um, and even more important to invest in previously incarcerated black women. So it is going to be a fight all the time, but, you know, I'm equipped for the fight. So I'm um, a little tired. I might have to come to combine <laughs> yeah, and yeah, get yeah. a little bit <laughs> of work it out. I'll give, you, I'll give you the energy you need. <laughs> get my stamina up. <laughs> There's more than that little track running around that you'd be doing every morning. <laughs> yeah, how about <laughs> Right. Nah, but uh, so so how can people help? Like, I know you need money and hopefully our listeners, you know, uh, so definitely plug in where people could donate and contribute. But how more and, you know, we could help you at your organization. Thank you. Absolutely. So they can text the word the L-O-H-M 2022. So T-H-E-L-O-H-M 2022 to the number 41444. Um, in order to get signed up to our newsletter, they can donate there and go on our website, the LOHM.org, any of our social media platforms at the LOHM. If there's media opportunities, like I said, there's over a hundred women in our speakers bureau, you know, helping to elevate the message and the voice. If there's opportunities to get into rooms where people have access to capital. Um, but there's also, you know, people's talents, you know, volunteers, we need them. Uh, mentorship, sisters need them. Access to property and land. You know, we are a nonprofit 501c3 organization. And so, you know, any gifts that are given, they're tax deductible. And so, um, you know, there's that. There's, you know, creative ways that I can work with people. They can invest their time in our work and helping us to, you know, take our work to the next level. We partner with Third Point and Margaret and Daniel Lowe Foundation. And the Third Point, the hedge fund, what they were able to do for us is help us think about structuring some of our finances and, you know, how are we building things to scale? What policies and procedures are we putting in? Board governance. They've actually taught financial education courses, how to invest through the hedge fund. And this gave access to women as to how they're thinking about spending money and what they need to do around investment and savings. Um, but to your point, money is what we need to survive, is what I need to continue to grow and scale. And so, you know, every dollar counts as it relates to helping us to get to our next level. Well, thank you, Topeka. I appreciate you joining the, the hardest step and, and really getting deep and sharing the stories. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how we can help and, and spread the word. Uh, I appreciate you joining. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you both. I appreciate it. And I am definitely going to take you up on that con body uh, yeah. membership. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, let yeah. me know what's I, happening. I got you. And if you had, uh, <laughs> if you have any of your participants that want to get into the health and fitness space, like definitely hit me up. Um, I'm hiring all the time. I'm also starting another organization as well, well, company getting into the cannabis space. So anybody that wants to be in that space, hit me up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm discriminating now, so I'm only hiring people that have been in the system. That's it. Yeah, so everybody know. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, I got a whole bunch of people who want to do that. So Done. I got you. Done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Hardest Step. 
a podcast from the Lost Debate, and I'm your host, Koss. And I'm your host, Chris. To hear more stories like this, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you next week.